King weekend. I know tomorrow is the day specifically that is set aside as a, a day of observance, awareness, appreciation. I don't want this moment and this weekend to go by without without all of us, black, white, red, yellow, to think about this nation and what the civil rights movement and, and much of it led by Dr. King and his associates what it really means to all of us and the liberties that we have and many of the freedoms that they not only fought for, marched for, they were locked up and jailed, some in prison and beaten and even murdered because they took a stand for right, for righteousness and justice in our nation. And so normally I start off on Monday or Tuesdays preparing for the week, uh, the sermon for the weekend. And I had gotten all the way to Wednesday and realized this coming weekend is Dr. Martin Luther King weekend, and I don't know how it slipped. And so I had to regroup and say, God, I, I want to do something that would not only recognize and honor him, but something to repeat and refresh the clarion call that we all in the household of faith take a stand for righteousness and justice in America at the foot of the cross of all places. And so today, I want to preach a sermon that was inspired by a text that he preached in the mid-60s at the National Baptist Convention, Women's Auxiliary Youth Department, of all places. Now, I will go ahead and say I'm going to use his title and I'm going to use the text. But there's no way I'm ever going to try to preach one of Dr. King's sermons that I love so greatly, one of my favorite preachers, because I'll never be able to do it any justice, and neither will I even borrow any content from his sermon, not because it's plagiarism, uh, if I give him credit for it, but um, it's just because I don't feel like I'm worthy to really repeat the things that God laid on his heart in that moment, in that hour that he actually lived painfully through. So if you don't mind this morning, can we? Can you stand with me as I summons your soul and invite your intellect to this great invitation of feasting off of a meal that God has prepared for all of us. It's found in God's word in Luke chapter 11, the gospel according to St. Luke chapter 11 verses 5 through eight. And he, Jesus, said to them, which of you have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And then that same friend you knock on his door at midnight, his response is that he answers from within and he says, do not trouble me, the door is now shut. Yeah, my children are all with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, Jesus says, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, Yet because of his persistence, because of the man's persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. 
If I could use as a sermon title today, the title Dr. King tagged this text with A Knock at Midnight. A Knock at Midnight. You may be seated. I think if any of you all know me fairly well, you would know that I am an easygoing, happy-go-lucky fellow. I love to laugh. The reality is there's very few things that shake me. There's very few things in life that really gets me upset. The same guy you see here on Sunday or whenever it is during the week, my wife will tell you, the kids will tell you, that's, that's who I am at home. I'm just a clown, love to have fun, jovial, and it takes a lot to get me upset. I've been through a lot. These 60 years from my birth to this point, my family, they encourage me all the time, you need to write a book, it would be a bestseller. But there is one thing that it will turn me upside down. You will see a side of me that you never thought I had. And that is to wake me up from a good nap. <laughs> Babe, I'm telling the truth. Church, I am a different person. It's not so much I've been asleep all night and you wake me up at five o'clock in the morning. You got to understand my Sunday afternoon ritual and routine. When I leave here, I grab a snack or a light lunch, take a shower, I get into bed, I pull up the covers, and everybody run. They know, let the giant sleep. My two oldest daughters were talking not long ago, and I happened to walk in the room, they started laughing, and I asked, what are y'all laughing about? They said, well, when we were growing up, we were actually more afraid of you than they were their mom. And I said, well, why is that? It says, well, because you never yell at us. You never fussed at us. You were always just even-tempered. But we just knew with that type of personality, just one day you were going to snap. <laughs> they said, but the one time you would get upset is if you were taking a nap. And we were making a bunch of noise. And Katina will tell you, listen, <laughs> usually I don't even say anything. I'll just get up out the bed, grab whatever I got. If I don't go downstairs, I'll get my car and drive off into the wild blue yonder. <laughs> I hate, especially when I first fall asleep. For anybody to wake me up. I don't know why. But when anybody else in here like that? It's just me. All right. Okay. Made me feel real good about myself now. That's why I love coming to church. But I can think. And I would think that. Hardly any of us in here would like to be awakened in our, from our sleep. In the middle of the night. 
Not in the midnight hour. It's disturbing. It's shocking. It does something to our mind, body, and our soul. Jesus gives us this parable about a man who came knocking on a friend's door in the middle of the night, in the midnight hour. In the immediate and the imminent context of the scripture, this passage, Jesus teaches his disciple, the beginning of this chapter, in his thesis on prayer. How to pray. We know it as the Lord's Prayer, or more formally it should be called the Disciple's Prayer. When we look at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus lays a foundation as well as a framework for prayer. How to pray, but not only how to pray, but the basis for our prayers. Jesus moves from the platform that prayer is structured on, and he moves from the first part in terms of the platform and foundation to now, in these verses, he talks about the persistence of prayer. The words contained in this parable that Jesus gives in verses 5 through 8 are first and foremost in their hermeneutical context about prayer. But we learn that a parable or a narrative can have more than one meaning. There's a reason why I'm telling you this. In other words, the, 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 the parable or uh, the narrative of a story can be synonymous or even homonymous with a, a different or a different meaning or implication or application. Uh, I.e., for example, when we look at the story of Jonah and his disobedience and running from God, gets on a boat. God arranges that a great fish swallows him up in his disobedience. And he's in the belly of this fish for three days and then he spews him out on dry land. Well, the immediate context, implication and application of that is that we should not try to run from God because he always knows where we are. And as a result of running from God, there are always consequences. Immediate application and implication. But then there is also a great, I would dare call it a secondary application to this text. There's homonymity between this Old Testament passage and the New Testament picture. And that is of Jesus Christ who took upon his own body on the cross our rebellion and sin against God like that of Jonah was nailed to the cross on our behalf, buried in a grave for three days on our behalf, and just as God spewed Jonah out on dry land, he raised Jesus from the dead on the third day with life and power. Now the reason why I'm telling you this is because there are many conservatives that accuse Dr. King and his preaching of not preaching the gospel. Or that he preached a social gospel and they look at a passage like this and say that he did the passage no justice because the passage was on prayer and it wasn't on social justice. <laughs> but this prayer is not, this, this, this parable is not only about prayer, it really is about the result of persistence prayer, persistent prayer. 
the result of persistence. A man was knocking in his desperation in the middle of the night, trying to get the attention and, and, and the assistance of a friend, and he never got a response until he kept on knocking. And Jesus says, and what I use is an acronym, A-S-K, you need to ask, you need to seek, and you need to knock. And oftentimes then there is a response. But in verse 5, Jesus says this in his parable to his disciples. He asked this question, which of you have a friend? And you go to that friend at midnight. And you say to that friend, lend me three loaves. Matter of fact, the friend in the narrative, he's not even saying give me. He says, lend me three loaves. Matter of fact, the bread is not even for him. He says it's for a friend of mine who's on his journey and he come to my house, but I have nothing set before him to eat. There are many features that highlight the culture and the time that Jesus spoke this parable. Unlike today where most of us in this western hemisphere, we have an abundance of food in our houses. If it's not in our house, we have access to it in a restaurant or a grocery store. We not only have food for the day, but truth be told, most of us have leftovers. If it ain't leftovers in our refrigerator, it's leftovers in our storehouse. We have access and accessibility to food. But in ancient Palestine... In this day and time that Jesus spoke this parable, most of them didn't have the, did not have the privilege of having access. Neither was there any preservatives, if they had food, to keep them over to the next day or for several days like we have today. So Jesus in the parable says there's a man who came to the door of his friend knocking and he was asking for food because... His supply had run short. The brother, he just wanted to get a meal. But the anonymous and the idiosyncratic timing of this request, that's what should draw our attention. The brother didn't come at 7 o'clock in the evening, knocking on the door, said, I'm watching the football game. We ran short on bread and we trying to make some sandwiches. He didn't come at nine, said, my family can't sleep at night when they're hungry and we're trying to go to bed. The text says that he came at midnight and he's knocking on the door asking for food. <laughs> I mean, it seems strange, bizarre, inexplicable that he would come in the midnight hour asking for food. But it's because of this man's request in the midnight hour that God has allowed us to see the desperation of the one who's making the petition. It's under these, under normal circumstances, listen, he would probably wait until the next day. But there's some abnormality here. There is a situation that causes him to make a desperate plea and petition in the middle of the night. Anybody ever been there? We can sense, if you read the emotion in this text, 
We can sense the agony. We can sense the fear, the anxiety, the grief, the gloom, the despair, the heartache of this man. He's late in the midnight hour. And he doesn't have food for a friend that's coming to his house and not able to show hospitality. The reality is, church, none of us like getting that knock on the door, that phone call in the midnight hour. When that phone rings or that there's a knock at the door in the midnight hour, it's usually not good news. Oftentimes, it's someone near and dear to us who is sick or fallen ill. Someone is involved in a serious accident and can't wait until tomorrow. There's an arrest if your family is like my family. There might even be a death in the midnight hour that just can't wait until the waking hours for this phone call or for this knock to be made. It's in the middle of the light night when we don't like to be wakened and shaken out of our sleep. When we don't like to be disturbed that we are disturbed. But for very good reason. My brothers and sisters, I, if when I look at the context and construct of this parable, I came to the realization that we too all now live in that midnight hour in our society. And the question I have for you is, can you hear someone knocking on your door in the midnight hour? I am convinced that we are living in a culture, living in a time of midnight madness. And if that doesn't shake your soul, I'm talking to the Christian community. Of what we see on a daily basis that goes on in our society, nothing ever will. Let me kind of talk about that midnight hour. I believe I can hear the knock at the door in the midnight hour, the cry from our society as a result of the failures of our leadership in America that is at a crisis point. Our nation's leaders, I'm talking about Republicans and Democrats, are so divided along party lines that it seems, it appears to me that none if very few of none have the interest of our nation at heart and very few have the supremacy of God in the forefront. It seems and appears that they've turned their hearts from God and from absolute truth to either protect their party's interests or their own personal interests and their own financial gains. I thought we would have a church that understood what I'm talking about. Church, I submit to you, what, what do we do? Men and women of God, when we have men and women that are in public office, elected officials, called to lead our country, I understand that America is not a Christian nation. In my estimation, it's never been a Christian nation. But at least from our leaders, we look to see God-fearing people that lead people to fear God in loving harmony. Lead one another by example to be respectful to other people regardless of their opinions, regardless of their choices in life. Lead people to be live productive lives and then be protectors of the people. 
How do we give credence and obedience to the Word of God when God Himself instructs us, for instance, in, in Romans chapter 13, it says, Let every soul, every soul be subject to the higher powers because those powers are ordained of God. How do we, how do we obey to submit ourselves to the Word of God when our leaders live in such a way and they operate out of darkness in that midnight hour? I'm trying to find that balance of how to be submissive to our leaders and be respectful, but at the same token, have a prophetic voice to cry against the wickedness and evil in this nation. So how do we give credence and obedience to the word of God? And how do we yet vote for people that we can't vote out of a good conscience? Because we don't believe that they hold the truth of God in the highest esteem. People are asking for our vote, but the question is, are they worthy of our vote? And there's so much compromise in the church that we don't hold our elected officials accountable and make them, if you will, accountable to our vote. How do we vote out of a good, godly conscience for people who we are trying to choose between the lesser of two evils? I hear that knock in the midnight hour. We have a leadership crisis. And I hear the cries of our society. They're just looking for a friend that is willing to open up their door in the middle of the night to get uncomfortable to give them that living bread. But secondly, I also hear the knock at the door in the midnight hour as it concerns racism in this country. It seems as if almost all the work of and sacrifices of Dr. Martin Luther King and many of our forefathers in the civil rights movement that they have literally given their lives and their time and sacrifices to as if it's just going down the drain or it's being trampled on, either being trampled on by a younger generation that doesn't understand and doesn't appreciate the sacrifices. And now they all, regardless of race, they all consider themselves entitled to the privileges that people died that we might have and then they don't even take advantage of them. There are others who trample upon the sacrifices that were made by Dr. King and those in the civil rights movement and our forefathers because they now promote a new racism. There's a great dividing line in racial line, down racial lines that is presented a racial tension that I have not experienced in these 60 years. It seems as if I, if I can say this respectfully but prophetically, whether you like it or not, if our current privilege, uh, current president, since he's been in office and even before, has given privilege and license to folk in certain groups to say and do whatever they want to do, disrespecting others in light of their supremacy. Even today in 2020, racial injustice is still the top entree on the menu. Yeah, I.e., 
Blacks are still paid less for the exact same work, the exact same experience, and the exact same education than our white counterparts. Blacks are still the last one hired and the first ones fired when it comes to corporate America. Uh, Y'all don't believe me? Black coaches in the NFL still don't get equal opportunities as their white counterparts. NFL for a black coach simply means this, not for long. You have one bad season and you're out the door regardless of what your contract says. Can I give you an example of that? Jim Caldwell, a Super Bowl uh, winner, the Baltimore Ravens, was contracted by the Detroit Lions, my home team. He, they, he came in at a time when the Lions organization was upside down, hadn't seen a playoff in decades, and, and he came in his first season, won nine games, second season, nine games. The year before that, they hadn't won but one game. And then in his last year, his third year, he only won six games and they fired him. Nine, nine, and six. And then they got a black brother out of that position, put a white brother in the position, Matt Patricia, Patricia, and he concludes his first season not with a nine win on his rock, on his record, but he won three games and two of them were lucky. And they upped his contract for another year. And I am convinced if he was a half shade darker than me, he would not have a job in the NFL. You say, well, I don't believe that's just one example. Well, how do you explain that 70% of the football players in the National Football League are African American? And to this day, out of 32 teams in the NFL, only two of them are head coaches. Six got fired last season. Six coaches got fired and two of them, uh, or almost half of them were black. We don't even get the opportunity to be offensive coordinators so that we can be. Last time I checked, Colin Kaepernick still wasn't throwing a football in the National Football League. You can say what you want to say and have whatever opinions you want to have about the way he went about certain things. And we don't always make the right decision in every instance about how we want to convey our message. But he still has freedom of speech last time I checked. If a brother want to take a knee, he can take a knee. But there's a reason why he is not a quarterback, second, third, or first string in the National Football League. It has nothing to do about him taking a knee. It has nothing to do that his skill doesn't match the skills of others when you're bringing guys out of college football and never step foot on a National Football field to throw the first pass and they get a job, a multi-million dollar contract. This man is qualified, got a proven record, can probably out-throw and out-play at least half the quarter backs that are on teams right now and he's still unemployed he's unemployed for this reason it ain't just because he's black but he's speaking out against black injustices I'm not saying this as a divide some of y'all are sitting here thinking that he's trying to be political, I'm being biblical I'll prove it to you in a moment I, I, don't, I don't know I, how, how, how that, that's sports but I I don't know why blacks are still given more time behind bars and longer sentences uh, for the exact same crimes that white folk commit. 
I don't, I don't know exactly why schools in the black communities and impoverished communities still don't have equal resources to those in the white and suburban communities. I, I don't know how, why it is that folk were wondering why black folk are so upset now and they, they're, they're so sensitive and want to call everything racial because it is racial. You can't see it from that perspective until you wear this skin every day. <clears throat> so how are we supposed to feel? I'm talking about black Christians. How are black Christians supposed to feel with a white president in the White House who reverses everything the previous president who happens to be black did, even if it doesn't make any sense? How do you, how are we supposed to feel this past week when the president of the United States, again, today, who is Caucasian, reverses a bill that was signed by the previous president that was presented in a package by his wife for nutrition for kids in our country in school nutritional plan they say we got to get pizza and donuts and sugary drinks out of the hands of these kids in the lunchroom and put some nutritional food and some vegetables and some fruit on their place and that's mandatory and you not only reverse it but you did it intentionally on her birthday and you want to know how black folks feel about that? Out of all the other 364 days of the year, you're going to tell me that was accidental and then at the same token, your wife, who was first lady, plagiarizes everything the first lady said before you. You see, before we can hold hands and sing Kumbaya, you got to first... Again, deal with the truth. And so, if you don't think it's racial, then we have a president that is in office that when President Barack Obama, because I need to remind you, a black man, before he was ever elected, just started running, questioned the authenticity of his birth. Not only was he an American citizen, but what kind of American citizen is he, as well as want to label him with a religious identification that he did not choose or bear himself, call him Muslim, and he was not even Muslim. Now, if that doesn't have anything to do with race, it's because it wasn't just that Republicans were fighting against Barack Obama because he was a Democrat. But most of them, there is no doubt that they were fighting against him simply because of the color of his skin. Okay, if you think I'm wrong, then let's reverse the picture. Let's reverse the screen. We all know that if Barack Obama, a black man, lived like, spoke like, acted like, had multiple marriages like, groped women and bragged about it like had 11 women to come forward and make formal accusations against him if Barack Obama had filed six corporate bankruptcies pled guilty to defrauding charities of two million dollars and had an institution bearing his name and defrauded students out of their money 
If Barack Obama had been sued by the federal government for discrimination of unhousing, uh, fair, fair housing to white folk, made fun and humiliated people with disabilities, had written in proof of cancel checks to a prostitute, called white folk derogatory names in European countries as whole countries, locked white children in cages at the borders and separated them from their white parents, in office for 1,055 days and told 15,413 documented lies, false claims, or misleadings, gave all of his family members a job and uh, put him on the payroll in the White House, used his personal business and property investment for financial gain while serving in the White House, became friends and talk of collusion with the president of Russia without funding and support from the Ukrainian government in lieu for information to his opposing presidential candidate and had no major company that liked him and if Michelle Obama appeared in public that she didn't want to hold Barack's hand, look him in the face, make eye contact or have anything to do with him listen, they would have hung Barack Obama upside down, burned him to escape better yet, he never would have been in the United States. We're going to deal with truth. I didn't say all of that to compare the record of one president against another. That's a whole different conversation. I said that for this reason. Obama's black and Trump is white. And there's living proof in this country that black people always have to be better. You have to work harder. You have to be smarter. And you will still never be considered equal to your white counterparts in this country and have the exact same opportunity on the same basis. We will never be considered equal the way things are going, not unless black Christians and white Christians that hold up the blood-stained banner can come together and hold hands and recognize not only the past ills, but the present ills of our society, get down on our knees together, stand up together, and fight against what's going on in this nation. I hear that knock at midnight. I don't know if you can hear it. Dr. Martin Luther King said it this way. Injustice everywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I don't care who it is. You say, well, now you're preaching the social gospel just like Dr. King did. An interview in Playboy magazine. I didn't, I don't read Playboy magazine. I ain't saying I never seen it before. I said I don't read it. But reading some of Dr. King's memoirs and some of the articles, I, I just love again his writings, but in the interview, these, the interviewer of Playboy magazine said that people are calling you a radical. And he says, listen, they call Jesus a radical. And then he quoted St. Augustine and said, Augustine said that anything that they call legal that ain't righteous, it, it shouldn't be legal if it's unrighteous. And injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So, so, so why, why am I saying this? It's because justice is important to God. 
This is not about, again, political parties. I'll have you to know, in case y'all need to know, I don't tell everybody, I voted just as much Republican as Democrat or Democrat as Republican. So I don't, I don't choose parties. I try to choose out of a good godly conscience who I think was best for this nation. If you need to know for the record, no, this president did not get my vote. But I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm telling you when you go to the polls, you pray about it and choose out of a good conscience. And if you got to write somebody's name in there that you feel good about, even though you know they ain't going to win, but at the end of the day, you can sleep at night, then so be it. Just don't write my name in there. Why am I so passionate about this? It's because God is passionate about it. Matter of fact, the psalmist says in Psalms 89 and verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne mercy and truth go before your face in other words the throne of God resides it rests on his righteousness and his justice so you can't say justice is a social issue and it becomes a social gospel when we preach it in church people can socialize the gospel but the gospel is designed listen to address social issues The social doesn't take precedent over the gospel, but the gospel has got to be able to pinpoint and address social ills and issues of our society. I can hear a knock at midnight, a cry of desperation, people looking for a friend, a friend on the inside that is willing to be inconvenienced to open up their door to someone in their fear, someone in anxiety, someone in desperation, someone looking for answers. They're searching, they're seeking. <laughs> Even in this third area, I believe that we're living in a time of the greatest moral decline that I've ever seen. There's a knock at the door at midnight. Now we live in a time and a day and era. I'm not saying when I was growing up it was better, but I'm not one of them old heads that say, because back in the day it was a whole lot better. You know, people didn't do this and people didn't do that. People did some of the same things, but back then they called right, right, and they called wrong, wrong. But today people are doing it, and listen, they're not only calling, they're not, no longer calling right, right, and wrong, wrong. They don't even call right, wrong, and wrong, right. They say that none of it's right and none of it's wrong. It's the view of a postmodern society. This is postmodernism. In other words, we are inward thinking thinkers. We are individuals who make up our own mind without any outside influences, outside sources. What we determine is right or wrong, if you even believe that there is right or wrong. Whether you believe there's truth or there's falsehood, whether you believe there's a God or there's no God, or what that God should look like based on our own inward imaginations and shaping that God out of our own creativity. So people just do whatever they want to do. That's the reason why there's no regard, no respect for human life. People, on one hand, crime is down, but murder is up in the United States. In other words, we don't steal stuff no more. We just kill people for no reason at all. You say, well, why did he shoot him? Was he trying to rob him? No. Was it a bad drug deal? No. Did he know the person? No. Did the person flick the bird? Was there an argument? Is something you mess around with? Oh, late? No. He just shot him because he wanted to shoot him. How do we get to this place? (laughs) This has nothing to do with politics. How do we get to this place? Because there is a great moral decline in the world that we live in. And that's even spilled over into the church. 
Now we are fighting for the rights of immorality. And we want to call it justice. If we want to say people choose certain lifestyles, then we want to put it under the banner of civil rights. And listen, because of the lifestyle choices, we want to treat it like the color of somebody's skin. Listen, listen, I ain't had no choice of what my race or ethnicity would be, but I got a choice of who I'm going to sleep with. God doesn't determine that for any of us. Those are the choices we make out of our own preferences, out of our own heart. I say this with the greatest love and greatest sensitivity, but if we're going to deal with one subject, we might as well deal with them all. Paul says, here's the problem. Here's the problem of our depravity, of our human condition. In Romans 1.23, how do we get to this place? And don't forget, this was written 2,000 years ago, so... The same thing applied back then, the same conditions, we have the same sins, the same people, yesterday and today. Hmm. He said they changed the glory of the incorruptible God, Romans one twenty three. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They disregarded the glory of God. They glorified themselves and the things that God created and gave them either equal or greater glory than God himself who was the creator. The results, verse 24 of Romans 1. Wherefore, wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. That's a sad commentary and statement when it says God gave them up. He says, if this is what you want to do, you want to disregard me and choose these lifestyles, then I'm going to allow you to do it. I was putting the brakes on it. I had some control over it. But now I'm just going to allow you to do it and just be as unclean and foul as you want to be. And he says, through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And this is what they did. They changed the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They didn't just disregard God, but those who acknowledge there is a God, they twisted his truth. And they twisted his truth for their own convenience and for their own pleasure. Romans one twenty six, Paul says. Uh, uh, Paul says, for this cause, for this reason, once again, God gave them up into vile affections. He said, I'm not just going to take my hands off of you. I'm not going to just stop protecting you, but I'm going to let you live with your earthly choices. You're going to live with these consequences. So he gave them up, and he called them vile affections. They're not just affections, but they're vile. They're unclean, they're profane. What does it look like? Well, the first charge he has is this. For even their women did not change, for the women did change the natural use into what is against nature. Instead of women naturally liking women, he says women have chosen other women to be with. That's what he says. And he says that it's not natural. I'm going to pause there for a second. Don't let anybody fool you and twist the scripture that says, God created me to be homosexual. Now, now listen, Body of Christ Church, we welcome all people. And we welcome homosexuals. We love everybody. But at the same token, we can't call something other than what it is. 
I don't care what it is. If it's a lying tongue, it's a lying tongue. We love you, but you got to stop the lying. You can't justify behavior either by saying God doesn't exist or I'm not going to honor him as God or because he is a loving God. That's his word. Now I'm going to twist that around for my own benefit to live my own lifestyle and make my own choices. Sisters, I know it's bad out here, but is it that bad? (laughs) Women with women. And he didn't stop there. Verse 27. Hold on, brothers. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use, the natural use. That's the way he started from the beginning. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Natural use. The natural use. The nat. See, some of y'all, listen, you got, you have gay family members. Listen, I do too. All right. I love them all. I mean, I tell you, I love them. Listen, there ain't a homophobic bone in my body. I love everybody. Jesus, I'm talking about generally. I love a homosexual just like I love a heterosexual who is engaged in a great marriage with his husband or with his wife of the opposite sex. So it, it, it has nothing to do with it. So I don't want you to start spreading that word around. All right. I'm only repeating what God has written. Now, what you want to do with it when you leave here, you can twist it, cut it out, cut and paste, and rewrite your own Bible if you want to, but I'm just preaching it like it is. This is called prophetic preaching, in case you didn't know. Prophetic preaching ain't calling you out and say, God just laid on my heart that he's about to bless you tomorrow. Now, prophetic preaching is calling us to repentance. And understanding if we don't repent of our sins, there are consequences that make it even how much God loves us. Men leaving, leaving the natural use of a woman burn in their lust. They were burning in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemingly. I'm not going to even, I said when I was typing it out, I'm not going to even give commentary on that. It just said that it's unseemingly. It is not God's design. It ain't even supposed to work or fit like that. That y'all got the point. Is unseemingly and receiving them in themselves that recompense of their error that was justified and met as a result of the sin. I'm getting quieter here when I was talking about black and white issues. Oh, amen. You preaching Barack Obama. <laughs> you heard him, Doc. I thought about to be a writer here. I said, boy, they're about to go Pentecostal on this race subject. A touchy subject. But before I go any further, here's the reason why I'm preaching these verses and being specific about it. Because I don't believe that all these people want to live that kind of lifestyle. I believe that they are probably in environments that support the lifestyle and that's where they get their love, their attention, their affection, and they are embraced. But then when they come knocking on the church doors in the middle of the night, we turn our noses up at them. Like they got the plague. Oh, we're hypocritical. We want to turn our noses up at, and turn our backs on homosexual, but we sleeping around with somebody of the opposite sex who don't belong to us in marriage. I know some of y'all sitting there, I can see it on your face, but I'm grown. Be grown. God addressing grown folk. He ain't addressing babies. He ain't no babies in it. This ain't, you don't read this in the preschool. 
He's addressing grown folk here. Matter of fact, he addresses those grown folks in just a minute. I'll get to it. And listen, verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. See, the problem is not just because a man sleeping with a man and a woman sleeping with a woman. That's not the major problem. That's not the major problem. The major problem is the reason why they're in these relationships and making these choices is because they refuse to acknowledge God as God. You got to understand that we're all struggling with some kind of sin. If you ain't struggling with it, it means you've already caved into it. We're all struggling with some kind of sin and we're going to struggle until Jesus comes back. And there may be some folk that are struggling with same-sex attraction. It's okay. It's okay. You ain't weird. You just sinner just like all the rest of us. You got a same-sex attraction. You don't know why, but ever since you were a teenager or whatever, you, you just, you're a guy, you like looking at other guys. You think guys are cute. You like being, uh, you're a girl and you like other girls. And so that's, hey, listen, some folk, listen, God didn't create us for homosexuality, but some of us, listen, are not as masculine as men as others and not as feminine as other women, and we may have a same-sex attraction. It don't mean, listen, that you're homosexual. It means that it's something you are going to have to fight against and wrestle against by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Let me say it another way. Some folk get lie all the time. You couldn't tell the truth to save your life. You would lie. <laughs> so you can't say God gave you a lying gene. Like he gave folk a homosexual gene, then he gave me a lying gene. If you look at the other sins listed here, he talks about murders, he talks about adultery, or fornicators, he talks about uh, people just doing all kind of evil acts. So why do they do that? Because they got a, they got a, they got a killing gene. Just the way God created them, just to be murderers. Some folks just can't keep their stuff off of other folks' property and putting it in their pocket when they go to the mall. That's because the way, that's the way God created them. He gave them a thieving gene. <laughs> Some folks are gossipers because that's the way God created them. They were born that way by God's design because listen, they just got a gossiping gene. You can't say if it's in this list of sins that God disapproves of, but this one is the way that God created me to be when God says, no, I didn't. It's not natural. The problem is, with any of these sins in this list, is not the sin or the struggle in itself by itself. The problem is, we don't like to acknowledge God and make him preeminent in our lives. So we would rather choose this over him. What did God do? He gave them over to a reprobate mind to do the things that are not convenient. It's not normal. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. They're filled with all unrighteousness. We're filled with all unrighteousness. Fornication, wickedness, fornication. That's that other sin between heterosexuals. Y'all got that, right? Sleeping with folk you ain't married to, sleeping with somebody else that they're married to, but you ain't married to. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, always got to argue about something, deceit, malignity, just evil, whisperers, did you hear, do you know, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, 
proud boasters, inventors of evil. Some folk are boasters. You can't never get your testimony and story out because they always got a greater one than you. I'm going down 540. Man, cut me off the other day. My car flipped over three. Yeah, three times ain't nothing. My car flipped over 11 times. And look at God. I'm still here. <laughs> that, is, that is his problem. They boast about everything. I don't know if you heard. <laughs> See, you got a, got a new car. What she got? She got a G.O. prison. Oh, that ain't nothing. I got a Benz. <laughs> Listen to this. They're not only proud and boasters. They be coming up with new evils every day. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. Disobedient, go left. You don't tell me which way to go. Go right, you don't tell me which way to go. I can't wait till I, I leave. I can't wait till you leave either. We're all just waiting. Disobedient to parents. Kids today in school, they're not threatened when the teacher says, okay, I'm going to call your parents. That was the deal seller for me right back in the day. That was for all of us as kids. There might have been one or two kids out of the whole school, out of 1,050 kids that, that if you said, listen, that you're cutting up and you say, all right, I ain't going to tell you that morning. Next time you go in the principal's office, we're going to call your mama. You sit yourself down somewhere. You might be saying some stuff, but you're saying it real. Y'all remember Hillbilly Bears? Y'all remember Hillbilly Bass? They're telling my age, the cartoon Hillbilly Bass, and, and the father Hillbilly, you can never understand what he was saying to the last word. Shucks. <laughs> That's the way most women, men talk to their wives, right? Shucks. Okay. <laughs> Disobedient to parents. And listen to this. In all of this, People think that they're smart, but he says, without understanding how many academic degrees you got, still don't understand. Covenant breakers can't keep a promise and keep the truth and keep your word to save your life. Without natural affection, they got no sympathy for nobody, no empathy for nobody. It's all about you. And listen to this merciless, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they who commit such things, listen, it's about to get dangerous, and they who commit such things are worthy of death. Now I don't know how we're going to get around this. I would like to cut that out. Say how can a loving God kill folk or they be condemned to eternal damnation. But he says it's because of the choices that they made, not the choice I made. If they didn't want to have anything to do with me while they were here, why do they want to have something to do with me when they're up there? You can't change plans between earth and heaven <laughs> when you know it's judgment. You got to make our, we have to make our decisions down here today for all eternity. You can't, you can't, you can't disown God, disapprove of God and the ways of God down here and then want to stand before him and say, okay, my bad, I was wrong. But I believe in you now. You got to make those decisions here. Who knowing the judgment of God, they commit such things that are worthy of death. But it doesn't stop there. Listen, this is for all of us. All, all that's for all of us. Because all of us, got we got something in this list. 
The question is, are we practitioners of it outside of our hearts desiring to give God glory? That's one. Or do we glorify and honor God, but I still got some stuff on this list that I'm struggling with. But this is what he said. And they that commit such things, commit such things, committed to such things, are worthy of death. Not only, listen, this, this is the part that gets all of us. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do. Here's the translation of that. It's not only the folk who are homosexual, the folk who are thieves, murderers, liars, covetous, evil, but it's those who approve and don't address it. We're just as guilty as the ones who do it. That's, that's what the text says. Let me read it again. Let me get my laptop back up. I lost it. Okay. Again, those who commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do it. If we're not addressing this, then we become partakers with it. Now, here's the reason why, again, I'm preaching it. It's not just for change. God is not in the behavioral, the, the, the changing of behavior. He's not in behavioral management business. He's in the heart changing business. And when the heart is changed, gradually our behavior begins to change. The reason why I said all of this is because these people who are struggling in these areas, who have dismissed God, they're knocking on the door in the midnight hour, crying out of desperation. And they want to know if there's a friend on the other side of the door that is willing to be inconvenienced, who's willing to get up in the midnight hour to open up the door and give them bread, not just natural bread, not just $20, go get you something, not just a pat on the back, but that living bread. And are you willing to serve it up and put butter on it? Jesus Christ. Let me close with this thought. I I was going to go through the whole church and what our challenges are today, but that's going to make this sermon too long. There's a response of a friend. The question is, how will we answer? Will we answer the door and how will we answer the door? The response of a friend, verse 5. Jesus says, and he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give to you. When I read this, especially that part where it says my children in bed and they already sleep. I start justifying and say, that's legitimate. I don't get up because anybody got kids. No, you wake them rascals up. You can't get them back to sleep. Who did at the door? Uh, Mr. Jesse next door, what do you want, daddy? He wants some bread. I want some bread. <laughs> and then you can't get him back to sleep. I understand the man's dilemma. He, he said, I ain't answering this door because then it's going to wake my kids up and I can't get them back to sleep. Everybody got kids. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? But it's really not a legitimate excuse. Matter of fact, it was so bad, the text says that he answered from within, which means he didn't even come to the door to respond. He back in the bedroom. Ain't nobody here. 
don't trouble me. The door is shut, bruh. And I can see the brother on the other side say, brother, you think I'd be knocking on your door in the midnight hour if I wasn't desperate? I don't enjoy who I am. I'm just looking for a friend that's going to give me living bread. But what was the response? I, 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 I can't help you uh, because it's inconvenient to me. Let me say this as we close. What is the church's response? There's three types of churches that hear that knock at midnight at the door and how we respond. Number one is the super spiritual church. Oh, they, they just, they just, oh, they're just so spiritual. Oh, just, oh. And because we're so spiritual, it makes us so righteous that we want to point our finger and blame everybody else. Well, the reason why they got this and the reason why they got that and the reason why they're going through this is because they deserve this is because the judgment and hand of God. I tried to tell them and God's still trying to tell you. He's still trying to tell me. It's that judgmental, super spiritual church. They are that church that's active. They're busy. But like the church of Ephesus, they have no love for God and they have no love for other people. But they're active and they're busy. They're always doing something. They preach about love, but they don't demonstrate love. They, they preach about how God has forgiven them back in the day, but they're not willing to forgive one another. Super spiritual, judgmental folk don't want to be inconvenienced and open up the door to people on the outside. Then there's a second church. They're not necessarily super spiritual. These are just folk who just ignore the knock. Did you hear something? No, I ain't hear nothing. Yeah, neither did I. We don't want to bring people from the outside in. Because studies have proven that most people who were on the outside, when they come inside, after two years of being on the inside, now you got new friends, the things you used to do, you don't do no more, the people I used to associate with, also, so now I'm with church folk doing church things. And then what we do then, at that point in time, the whole goal of the church is to strive for the preservation and the comfort of the people in the church. I don't want nobody coming in and messing this up for me. I like my seat. You like your seat? I like, <laughs> that was a conversation earlier. I like, I like the way things are. So I'll just ignore the knock at the door in the midnight hour. <laughs> Man, I've had some rough seasons these 28 years. And here's what I do realize. If you answer the door, you're going to take huge risks. And when you open that door and let people in, you have no idea what the life looked like. You have no idea what the journey looked like. And that's all you want to do out of love is give them that living bread and love on them. And as a result of myself and this church doing just that and taking those risks and open those doors in the midnight hour, we have had people to come through these doors that nearly ruined and destroyed our entire reputation. Committed crimes that make headlines in the news. And the bad part about it is two out of the three incidents, they didn't even go to this church. They're just people that <laughs> passing through. One guy was looking for a job. 
And while we're reviewing the application, he's doing something he ain't got no business doing. And there's been times I want to throw in the towel and say, God, uh-uh. I ain't let nobody else in here other than the folk who I know and half of them shady. I got my eyes on them. And there's huge risk you got to take when you let people in the house, when you let people in your house, when you let people ride in your car, and when you let people in your life, in your space. You got to make some judgment calls about it. But do you stop opening up the door? Do you ignore the knock? So let somebody else get it. Some other church. Then there's that third church. And I hope we are that church. We got some work, but I think we're on the right road, body of Christ. That church, the third church is that church that's filled with imperfect people. Who have come to know a perfect God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We were once those people on the outside, lost, bewildered, hopeless, desperate, filled with anxiety, loveless, filled with questions. And somebody opened the door for us to accept us just as we are, to embrace us. I know some of y'all think, y'all, no, I ain't have no, no, no junk in my life. So, no, 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 no. But let's look at it this way. Forget the people in the church. God let you into his family. He adopted you and called you his son and daughter. What reason, how good do you have to be to get adopted into the family of God? So if you think you're on an equal playing field with us, that's one thing. But if you think you're on an equal playing field with God, that's a totally different thing. But he took the chance to risk for us and, and allowed us in. And this is what we're doing. It's just one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. <laughs> I understand where you are. I may not be able to identify exactly what you're going through, but I know what it's lost to be like. Be lost, be bewildered, to be overwhelmed, to be anxious, to be fearful, to have a ton of questions. It seems like nobody has the answers to life. To live a lifestyle that you're not pleased with, that you're ashamed of, you feel condemned in. And I want to feel guiltless. I want to be liberated. I want to feel free. Tell me where I can find this bread. And it ain't just for me. I'm trying to get bread for my friend who's a sojourner and he's traveling through as well. But I can't give him something I don't have. When you reach out to one, others will come. Jesus says, um, the tragedy in the story on one hand, and thank God it didn't end there. The man wouldn't get up in the middle of the night and open up his door. But here's what I love about the story. But the man on the outside was persistent. He's like some of our cousins. <laughs> get drunk. <laughs> I had an uncle like that. He called my mother mom. He'd come in the middle of the night. My mom said, I am not answering that door and let him in. I know that fool drunk. I ain't got time to be there. Ma, he'd knock all night. Ma. Ma, 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 let me in. It's cold out here. Ma. And finally she said, will you please go open up the door for him? This is what Jesus is teaching. If you didn't open up the door yesterday, guess what? They're knocking today. The world and its problems and those 
in the world that are struggling. They ain't going nowhere. And they keep knocking. But if we don't open up the door and give them bread, they're not going to be held for the door being closed, responsible for the door being closed. But we will. We will. You can't blame a bread man for begging for that living bread. But if we don't open the door and give it to them, then we're going to be held accountable. They're knocking. They're going to keep on knocking. And listen, the question is, what type of church are you? Out of these three, what type of church? Now, I didn't ask you what type of church do you go to. Because the church, local church, is made up the body and constituency of each individual member. And the health of the church is determined by each single identity and heart of the person and people that attend. So the question is, what type of church are you? Because when the benediction is given and the church service is over, you the church, I the church, we leave here. And we still are the church. But while you're here, ask yourself the question, what kind of church am I? Do I hear that knock in the middle of the night? It's easy to sit back and point our fingers about racism in America and to cast blame and to cast fault. But the question, let's just even start at this place. Are we praying? Are we praying that the walls and divisions will come down? And if the one place we can all come together is at the foot of the cross, repent of our sins and not just sing Kumbaya. But pour out our hearts to our fellow man and our fellow sisters. The question is not, is these people have gone crazy in this world, but do we pray for them? Are we pouring into their lives? Are we investing time? Especially a lot of our youth and kids. Listen, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. You say whatever you want to say about white folk and racism and the evangelical community. The one thing I will say about them. Boy, you go to those churches, they got some serious children and youth departments. And them folk in them church, I'm going to say it like I said earlier, them white folks will volunteer and they will serve them kids. They're taking trips all across the world and they're doing all these things. And I hate to say it. And then black folk want to come to a predominantly black church and say, that church over there. I say, if you do what they did, we could do the same thing. You volunteer in children's church. You volunteer in serving and pouring in the kids' lives. Listen, we can have a dynamic youth department. We know what it looks like. We know what it feels like. But you can't do it without people who are willing to make it happen. <laughs> if you want it, invest in it. Because our kids and our youth, I ain't going to be doing this forever. Y'all know that, right? Y'all ain't going to be doing this. Y'all getting old right along with me. And now is the time to start empowering our future generation to take over what God is if he delays this coming in our youth. Amen? All right, I got to leave you. I ain't done, but I'm tired. Let us pray. Father God, we give you thanks, oh God. Thank you for your glorious gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your truth, oh, Father, that sometimes it shakes us and makes us feel extremely uncomfortable. But yet, oh, Father, it's out of that discomfort, even the acknowledgement that we have sinned and come short of your glory. 
that you bring us into proper fellowship, oh Father, when we're willing to acknowledge and accept that fact. And to, Lord, trust you in Christ Jesus as our Savior. If there's anyone here that may not know Christ as the Lord and Savior, I pray today that they would surrender to you, oh God. I pray today, oh Father, that when we leave this place, oh God, we leave trying to make this world a better place. Lord, help us to live significant lives, lives on purpose. Really not realizing you have created us, you have placed us in this world, in this geographical location at this time. You've saved us and Christ lives in us, your Holy Spirit. Lord, so that we can pour into the people that you strategically placed around us and help us to love them as Christ has loved us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, let's magnify the Lord.